0: This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. The USGA and RNA received comments from more than 22,000 golfers in 102 countries as they reviewed the rules of golf this year. For more on the changes that are expected for January 2019, visit usga.org. Today is Monday, September 11th. It has been 16 years since September 11th, 2001, when acts of terror killed thousands of people across New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. There is not a simple way of describing that day. America and much of the world was left in dreadful awe and left uneasy like never before. Today's podcast will discuss and remember the immediate weeks that followed 9-11 and do it from a golf angle. It will lean on the reporting of John Garrity, longtime writer at Sports Illustrated, who was in Kansas City where he lives on the morning of 9-11. Two weeks after the attack, he filed a story that would run in the October 1st issue of Sports Illustrated. It was titled Sacred Blues and detailed not only the cancellation of that year's Ryder Cup, but also the European tour event that would go on and would follow that week. The article captured how, if only for a few trifling moments, golf helped heal people. Golf helped heal the minds of many people who were left in confusion following the terrorist attacks. John joins me now as we look back. 2001 was quite the year in golf. Oh, it feels so far away now, but it's not rare that we look back upon that season 16 years ago. The first major of the year down at Augusta National will always be remembered as Tiger Woods' fourth major victory in a row. It became the final leg of what we now know to be the Tiger Slam. Woods shot 16-under to win that 2001 Masters, and in the early April event, he was pushed by all kinds of early 2000s rivals. You know those names. David Duvall, Phil Mickelson... Mark Calcavecchia Ernie Els, Chris DiMarco, even Angel Cabrera. That Woods triumphed was not a surprise in any way, but it capped off one of the greatest accomplishments in the history of the game. Woods' win came three weeks after his victory at Bay Hill, and two weeks after his win at the Players' Championship, where he was simply better than most. Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Sergio Garcia won his first PGA Tour event that year, Retief Goosen won the U.S. Open, Woods would add another two victories that year, and David Duvall finally made good on his potential by winning the British Open at Royal Lytham in St. Anne's. It was Duvall's win that kicked off nine straight American victories on the PGA Tour. 2001 was an odd year, remember that, and therefore it was a Ryder Cup year. The American team was a presumptive favorite, even though they'd be playing over at the Belfry across the pond in central England. Adding to that, Woods was planning to play the Trophy Lancôme. That was a European tour event one week prior to the Ryder Cup, held in Paris. Woods was golf's greatest star, and everyone, all kinds of European golf fans, were soaking up everything that he attached his name to. For the first time, here's John Garrity.
1: 2001, I think 2000, 2001 it was when we got into the ultimate Tiger mania
0: phase where he was, you know, stringing
1: together incredible strings of wins. The whole world was absorbed uh, in Tiger and his, and his pursuit of uh, these major championships. And in fact, there was uh, anticipation in Europe of the fact that before the, uh, the Ryder Cup, uh, that uh, Tiger was going to uh, play in the Trophy Lancôme uh, in France. And uh, ticket sales just went crazy for that event. I think they had something like 90,000 people uh, buy tickets in advance, and they were going to be coming in from uh, from all over Europe uh, to a tournament that didn't usually attract that, uh, that kind of crowd.
0: 90,000 fans was about three times what the Trophy Lancôme normally pulled in. That was the aura of Tiger Woods, as well as the significance of that Ryder Cup. Remember as well that this was the first Ryder Cup since the Battle of Brookline, which was a hasty yet thrilling rendition of the biannual event. The Americans recaptured the cup in 99, but the actions of American fans that week, and even the actions of some of the American players, were criticized highly by their European opponents. The two sides were to meet late in September for a second round bout that had about as much hype as any Ryder Cup in the previous decade. With all that in mind, September was going to be a great and memorable month of golf.
1: Yeah. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The CNN Center right now is just beginning to work on this story. You see that
0: emergency vehicles are there, understandably so, but of course the major concern is human oh loss. I mean, do you know if there were many people in the building? Oh, the another time? one just hit. Something else just hit. A
1: very large plane just oh flew directly over my building and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I can yes. see it on the shot. Oh, my. Something but, else has you just... You know what? And we just, just saw kind of a plane 740 circling in the bell at this moment at the World Trade Center. Stan Daler from ABC's Good Morning America is down uh, in, in the General of Dan, can you tell us what has just happened? Yes, Peter, it's Don Dale down here, four blocks north of the World Trade Center. The second building that was hit by the plane has just completely collapsed. The entire building has just collapsed, as if a demolition team set off. When you see the old demolitions of these old buildings, it folded down on itself and it is okay. not there anymore.
0: Attacks by Islamic terrorist group Al-Qaeda were orchestrated across America's eastern region in New York, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. Nearly 3,000 people were killed and thousands more were injured in what stands as the worst terrorist attack ever.
1: Everybody remembers where they were on September 11, 2001. And uh, I was at home. Uh, I was sleeping when, when the events uh, began. I'm a night owl and tend to get up in mid to, mid to late morning. Uh, I live in Kansas City and I remember uh, coming downstairs and my wife had the television on and I was just dumbstruck by what I was seeing. Uh, the uh, The first tower had been hit and uh, the images that were being shown and the analysis was absolutely uh, riveting. And uh, after after a time, uh, the second tower hit and we, we got to see all that on... On television, and then there was the uh, there were the fires, of the, and ultimately, uh, you know, the uh, one tower comes down, another another tower comes down, and here's where where my story, and my memory would deviate from most people, and looking back on it, I'm still dumbstruck by what I did in this circumstance.
0: John wrote, he was thousands of miles away from New York, but he was on deadline working on a story that he was assigned to file. Now, as a very meticulous writer, John takes his time with the type. He spends hours working, reworking, editing, organizing, reorganizing his prose. For some reason that day, things didn't exactly add up in his brain, and he turned away from the television, locked his mind on that golf work, and he filed his story to the offices of Sports Illustrated, which just so happened to be in midtown Manhattan, merely miles from ground zero. The office at Sports Illustrated was naturally in a frenzy. As I said earlier, there is no simple way of describing what happened on September 11th. Yet it needs to be addressed. But it has to be addressed respectfully and tastefully. That's not simple. It made the following magazine issue some of the most difficult to conceptualize. The editors made a plea to the staff. How do we cover this? How do we move on within the sports world? Should we move on? What type of story should we run? Do we run any stories at all? As for the tiny, niche, and in this moment, rather meaningless world of golf, it was also in disarray. Should the Ryder Cup be held? Should the World Golf Championship that was set to be played the following weekend in St. Louis, should that be held? Players were traveling to the event, and they're doing so by vehicle instead of a plane. Why even bother getting on a plane, is what some thought. Eventually, Tiger Woods was the first major chip to fall. Three days after the terrorist attacks, Woods announced that he would not be playing in the Trophy Lancôme, that aforementioned event in Paris. Woods did not directly address the Ryder Cup, but he did note how travel security was a serious concern of his. Not long after that, Steve Loy, then the agent for American players Phil Mickelson and Mark Kalkovecchia, he also said that his two players would not be traveling overseas. Loy said, to be frank about it, A golf tournament would be an easy place to commit mass murder, no matter how tight the security. It was a brash thought, that's for sure, and it earned plenty of criticism, but it was fair. The unknowns that followed such an incredible event left people thinking all kinds of things. Perhaps it was David Duvall, though, who said it best, telling The Guardian, there are going to be thousands of funerals. They are going to be burying bodies, and we are out there golfing? I don't think that's right. Meanwhile, the discussion continued about whether the Ryder Cup should be played at all. Both governing bodies involved here, the PGA of America and the European Tour, they both definitely expressed interest in having the event played as scheduled. You see, there are all kinds of moving pieces for them to think about. It was so close to happening, just weeks away. There are hotels, TV contracts, restaurants, millions of tourism dollars. There are also multiple schedules to consider for multiple golf tours that would be thrown out of sort just to accommodate such a grand displacement and replacement of the Ryder Cup. In hindsight now, it's really easy to realize just how obvious this decision should have been, but in the moment of an earth-shattering event, thoughts and priorities can easily be jumbled. Nonetheless, just two days after Woods' announcement, on September 16th, it was also announced that the Ryder Cup would be postponed and played one year later in late September 2002. As for Sports Illustrated... A postponed Ryder Cup set John Garrity into motion.
1: I got a, uh, a call from our uh, editor, uh, the SI Golf Group editor, Tim Harry, uh, said, John, we'd like you to fly over to England and do a report uh, from the Belfry and then follow up by going to Paris where the Trophy Lancome was supposed to be played and uh, and file a story on that scene.
0: I really want to know, if you had any transgressions about it or what your opinion was of it, were you all in? Like, did you feel like, holy cow, this is not the time for me to be doing this kind of work or this is exactly what I want to be doing?
1: Oh, it was exactly what I, what I wanted to do. I thought it was a really good idea. Uh, my wife was not so enthusiastic because uh, everybody had fears about flying at the time. Uh, what we need to remember is the fact that uh, nobody could really get their head around what, what the 9-11 catastrophe actually was. I mean, there was a plane uh, that went down that was destined uh, to attack the White House. Uh, the Pentagon had been struck Twin towers in New York. And uh, there were obviously a lot of hijackers involved in that activity. And uh, nobody knew if they were just, uh, you know, the point of the spear. Uh, there were fears that, you know, there might be all kinds of other terrorist incidents that were ready to explode.
0: That fear was universal, it seems. So it makes a lot of sense that no Americans were rushing onto a flight to Europe. John was, however.
1: I remember I, I flew from Kansas City to Atlanta before making the uh, flight uh, uh, to Manchester uh, in the U.K. And the, uh, the international terminal at the Atlanta airport was just spooky. Uh, it was evening. I ate in the food court uh, there, I think, and you know, it it seemed like it uh, is this three o'clock in the morning, or four o'clock in the morning. It just didn't it just didn't seem right. And I I boarded one of those giant jumbo jets. Of course, it was like the first year of 747 flights, where hardly anybody was in in the seats. Uh, uh, just a handful of people uh, on the flight over to the UK. And and then when I arrived and drove to uh, the Birmingham suburb where the Belfry is located, everywhere I went, it, it seemed like there was just a hush over everything. Um, uh, everybody still, still seems stunned uh, wherever you went.
0: Now, if you knew John, you'd know that he kind of sticks out. He's at least six foot six. He might even be taller. He's got white, wispy hair on top of a very slender frame. His image doesn't necessarily scream American at you, but his voice definitely does when he arrived in Europe, he found that locos rushed to embrace him
1: uh There was a feeling of uh sympathy and unity and resolve that everybody that you met shared with you and uh hearing my American accent, you know people people practically wanted to hug me when I got there and it struck me that Uh, This was probably the closest our countries had been uh, since uh, since World War Two. This feeling that we're all in this together, that all those countries and those people were sharing America's grief and resolved to uh, uh, to fight these atrocities. That's got nothing to do with golf, but it's it's definitely what what I felt when I arrived.
0: As he made his way to the Belfry, less than a week since the attacks, and just days after it was announced that the Ryder Cup would be canceled, John found what was essentially a ghost town, or what would be the dismantling of a town. Finding a room in the hotel was no problem. He stayed there in a room that, for that week, had surely been booked months, maybe even a year in advance. The Belfry Hotel itself, it looked immaculate. The course and all its spectator-friendly accommodations, it was all in perfect, pristine shape. But it was all for naught and it only lasted a couple more moments.
1: All this work had been going on, you know, for weeks to, to prepare for the Ryder Cup. So the giant grandstands were up in the big tents. And uh, uh, I mean, everything was gleaming, the flags of uh, seven countries uh, for representing the various uh, players on the two teams. Uh, they were all up and fluttering. But what I found when I arrived was that uh, all this stuff that had been being assembled was now being taken down. So work crews were taking down the giant grandstands and, and those big hospitality tents and merchandise tents and the media center and uh, the structures were coming down. I remember going into the, uh, the merchandise tent and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of sports shirts with the Ryder cup logo uh, being put back, in the, put back in the boxes and sealed up for storage uh, until a year later. And it was just—it was just kind of an amazing scene. One image that stands out in my mind, though, and that I mentioned in the story that I ultimately wrote, is while all this was going on, uh, there was a there was a landscape uh, worker uh, with uh, hand uh, trimming shears, you know, very carefully, uh, you know, clipping away at the hedges uh, outside the hotel. And I saw in a beautiful sunny day, and and I remember looking at him and and I thinking, you know, this, this is this, what this says is like there will always be in England, uh, no matter how how catastrophic the scene is, uh, somebody is just going to be going about their business, and making sure that things are uh, neat and tidy. That sense of safety and security will remain.
0: Yes, there would always be in England, but that man clipping the hedges at the belfry. He was just one tiny, insignificant image. Simply put, the scene at the Belfry was sadness. The local area, which includes Birmingham, England's third largest city, was saying goodbye, if only temporarily, to millions and millions of tourist dollars. All that money would need to wait. The hotels, the restaurants, the event tickets, even the coinciding events, things like dinners, concerts, speakers, they're trivial, sure, but they involve dollar signs that people in Europe greatly cared about. It was actually those dollar signs that led to a standoff between co-owners of the european tour event that would run prior to the Ryder cup let me pause for one quick second for a message from the usga combining golf in life is tricky i know i have a hard time doing it here in new york city how do you fit one into the other ask the usga and they think it's pretty easy it's called play nine nine hole golf is time friendly unwind friendly friend friendly it's conducive to just about every aspect of your busy, busy life. Golf after work, golf before you pick up the kids. It's possible when you play nine. You can even post your nine hole score and it counts directly towards your handicap. There's a lot to love about this game and when there's less time to play this game, the USGA says play nine. Learn more about options to play in your area by going to usga.org play nine. Lancome, the title sponsor and luxury cosmetic brand, wanted to cancel their tournament. IMG, the other owner of the event, and popular event and talent management group, insisted that it continue. Remember, at the time, Tiger Woods, IMG talent, he'd helped sell three times the normal amount of tickets. These were the type of hasty decisions that people had to make. So, there are economic concerns and much bigger, undetermined global concerns. And as much as people wanted to immediately move on, to understand, to return to their normal lives after the attacks of September 11th, they weren't really sure how they could, that they could. How does a worldview in which America is held as the highest standard, how does that survive an attack that absolutely rattled the country to its core? What exactly was coming now? Had the fuse of a third world war just been lit? There was this hidden yet... Palpable anxiety in the air, which is exactly what Garrity found when he traveled from England to Paris for the Trophy Lancôme. That thought of a possible third world war was very real, and players at the event even talked about it. No Americans showed up at the French capital, but of the players who did, many of them drove to the event, refusing to fly. Most of them also made it very clear that they would end their season abruptly after this event. Players just wanted to let this international fright settle before committing to any other worldwide travel. Jean Vandeveld, then, in the middle of his prime, globe globetriding on the European tour, he wondered what a war would do for that lifestyle. Remember, the European tour had expanded to include events in Africa, the Middle East, Australia, and Asia. It was more worldwide than any tour out there, but would such a worldwide tour exist in this new world? In a world with war? As John was doing his reporting, asking all kinds of questions that really couldn't be answered, finding people confused, finding people on edge, and finding people uneasy about the state of the world. He actually struggled with it himself. He was supposed to file a column earlier that week, which he had been doing most of the year, but now, for some reason, he just couldn't do it.
1: Uh, I was just absolutely frozen. And I, I haven't had much experience with writer's block. But this was an instance where I actually sat down intending to write something and found that I couldn't. It's just you know the column, its tone, you know you just couldn't handle this kind of issue uh, in in that in that forum. And I just fought with it, and I got up and got something to drink, went to eat, came back, tried to write again, couldn't get even the first line. I was wondering if I was going to be able to write the story that I'd been sent over there to write.
0: Is it a big deal that John Garrity was struggling to write? No. In the grand scheme of things, definitely not. But not being able to write, not being home in America, not knowing what the world was going to be like in Europe, in America, on a plane, anywhere, it actually made him quite depressed, just like it made a lot of people depressed. Like I said before, the ability for a longtime Sports Illustrated writer to write, it didn't feel important, but it comes back to carrying on and returning to a lifestyle that people had on September 10th, or September 9th, or September 1st. It was important to try and move on, to not let terrorism continue to terrorize you, in the same way that many golfers looked to continue playing golf, and to continue playing golf that weekend in the Trophy Lancôme. It was important to move on but again, in the most respectful way, which at this particular event was rather tricky.
1: The Trophy Lancome was not like most other golf tournaments in the States uh, or in Europe. Uh, It was, well, it was Paris. It was a very Tony event. Uh, It was an event where people who never watch golf come out to party in these big hospitality tents. Uh, There'd be these big party tents with champagne fountains and uh, chocolate, you know, covered strawberries everywhere, and men dressed to the nines, and you had women uh, in, you know, spectacular ballroom attire with high heels. Uh, sometimes they tried to venture out on the course, and of course they couldn't get very far, the women with these high heels out on the golf course. So it was it was kind of a situation where you had uh, this wonderful, elegant party going on, hosted by Lancome, and then out on the golf course, had a uh, uh, European PGA Tour event being played, you know, with not very heavy spectating going on on the course. That's what it traditionally was.
0: So there's a dilemma there, too. The Trophy Lancome was as much a party as it was a golf tournament, kind of like the Waste Management Open held in Phoenix every year on the PGA Tour. Playing golf so soon after September 11th is one thing, but hosting a party atmosphere alongside it? That was the basis for the quarrel between Lancome and IMG. The two sides argued and argued and argued whether it was the right thing to do. Eventually they met in the middle. The event would go on, and IMG would get its way. The party atmosphere of the event would be stripped from it, though, and Lancome was happy for that. Those party tents would be closed, the festivities wrapped up before they even began. The event would go on, but in its most basic, primitive, and and sullen form. Quite fittingly then, on Thursday, September 20th, the first day of the event, it rained. It rained and rained and rained and rained. The course was soggy, but play continued. There was this air horn that called for a moment of silence in the middle of the round as the shower continued. It gave Sergio Garcia a chance to take in the scene around him. Later on, he would say, it was as if the sky was crying. Garrity called the scene funereal. There seemed no chance that he'd be able to lift his own depression, that the event could change its gloomy demeanor, not with dark clouds in the sky and water in his boots, not a sentence forming in his mind, not a glass of champagne being sipped, or any spectators bringing that blissful mood to saint nom la breteche golf course. Whenever, and really if ever, Garrity would find the sentences to write, that article would have no fluff. Those reading sports illustrated back in America would know that depression, it travels, and all kinds of people everywhere were stuck in this spiderweb from September 11th. But then a bit of natural healing happened. Natural meaning nature. Mother Nature turned the gloomy forecast into a rather gorgeous one.
1: The weekend comes, the clouds and the rain go away, and suddenly it's uh, uh, out on the golf course. It's this idyllic autumnal atmosphere. And uh, it just couldn't have been nicer days. And uh, the spirits of the golfers actually rose because they were doing what they're supposed to do. It's more normal. But the abnormal thing was is that uh, all these people showed up on the golf course who don't usually show up on those golf courses. Half of them uh, were people who had originally gotten the tickets because they wanted to see Tiger Woods. So you had people from, you know, Belgium and Denmark and Italy and just everywhere around Europe uh, who had flooded in and Tiger wasn't there. But they still had their tickets and wanted to see golf. And then you had people who uh, had normally spent the entire week in the hospitality tents partying, and they weren't used to being out on the golf course. And so you had this very large crowd of uh, of spectators who who weren't even familiar with the you know basic rules and etiquette of how you behave at a golf tournament. And uh, so. I'd be out on the golf course walking around and I'd see uh, people climbing the apple trees and uh, pulling the apples off. And uh, you had uh, families walking onto the greens, uh, you know, underneath the ropes and walking onto the greens and putting down and brushing the grass because uh, they were so, ooh, look how beautiful this is. <laughs> this, is absolutely, this is absolutely lovely. And people brought uh, their pets. And so you had uh, you had dogs cheerfully running around and barking and playing, playing with children. And on the one hand, it was kind of crazy. Uh, on the other hand, it was absolutely glorious. There it was, it was this beautiful sense of, uh, of uh, normality uh, and an appreciation both for the big kind of garden park that golf courses are, uh, but also the spirit of play. Uh, that was going on on the course. And so uh, I felt myself coming out of that kind of deep depression that I was experiencing. And uh, like I said, we were all kind of in the boat together. We didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if we were on the threshold of a uh, a world war. Uh, But at least on these days, uh, things were normal and people could appreciate the beauty of it all.
0: So, the event that had always been atypical indeed sort of became atypical, just in a slightly different way. After Saturday's round, the 54 hole leader Retief Goosen, he talked to the press and he painted a pretty telling picture. We had a dog running around the ninth tee, and there were enough telephones and crying babies to muck up a few shots, Goosen said. But it was good, he continued. Everybody seems to be a bit happier now. And everyone was a bit happier. A bit. Golf had become the distraction that all kinds of people needed. Golfers needed it. Writers and media members needed it. The hardcore golf fans from neighboring countries and even those partygoers who bought tickets to see only Tiger Woods whack his ball around the countryside. They needed it too. It was a reprieve that, while brief, it continued into Sunday's final round. The final afternoon of the Trophy Lancôme essentially turned into a match play championship between Goosen and a snappy 21-year-old Sergio Garcia. With just four holes to play, Goosen had stretched his lead to four strokes. But Garcia made a charge. Sergio Berti the 15th, the 16th, and 17th holes and watched Goosen hand him the championship with back-to-back finishing bogeys. Uh,
1: Sunday, uh, you know, I had to get down to, uh, to business. Uh, clearly, the result of the golf tournament was not the focus of my story. Uh, but I was supposed to put that in, into it and try to come to some kind of conclusion. Uh, at the end of my piece, I, you know, did the usual things that you do at a golf tournament. Uh, you know, we had the uh, press conference and, uh, I took down all the notes about what Sergio was saying, but the quote that made it into the end of my story was, uh, Sergio said it meant a lot after what happened in America, meaning his victory. Uh, now he was 21 years old. You know, he, he didn't mean anything by that statement, but he didn't really grasp the bigger picture because uh, of course, it meant nothing at all compared to what had happened on nine uh, eleven. Uh, but uh, but he was he was just a young man, uh, you know, pleased uh, to have, have won a tournament uh, that was important to him and the the kicker, the end of my story was an observer could only stand in Garcia's jubilant orbit and share his dim understanding that whatever comes next, however dark and uncertain the future, He will always have Paris.
0: It was Sergio's third win that year, and that last line by John, it's a paraphrase from Casablanca. Rick Blaine, the character played by Humphrey Bogart, says to Ilsa Lund, played by Ingrid Bergman, we will always have Paris. It was a line that may or may not have actually felt true at the time, but now with hindsight, when you sit back and think about it, John Garrity, the golfers, the spectators... Sergio Garcia, everyone involved with or at the event, they too would always have that Paris. I talked to John on the phone about that Paris. We talked about his two weeks following September 11th for 70 minutes. His memory of it is as fresh as can be. He remembers that crisp feel in the air, dining out with the photographer of the story in downtown Paris. He remembers how the beautiful season of autumn had taken over an already beautiful city. The sharpness of those memories is similar to something else, though. It's similar to the sharpness of the memories of 9-11 itself. John said it earlier in the podcast, and it rings true for everyone, but specifically for Americans. There was always an answer for where were you on September 11th? What were you doing that day? Everyone knows their answer, and we think about it this time every year, and every time we're asked that question. Well, at least in this corner of the Gulf world, in the few days that followed the horrific attacks, despite all the confusion, the angst, depression, anxiety, indecisiveness, and controversy, there was a decision about whether or not to play a golf tournament. That decision became a yes, and with a slight reprieve, those people all also remember what they did after September 11th. And those memories are much, much happier ones. I'll leave you now with John's final thoughts.
1: Uh, Everybody uh, had seen their lives, their expectations, uh abruptly disrupted in a way that uh our generations had never experienced before obviously my dad's generation went through the same thing with pearl harbor uh, but uh it's just that uh you know you just had no idea what was going to happen next you didn't know if you know if your work was suddenly going to be meaningless uh you didn't know if you couldn't count on things like your relationships you know, your families and you know, uh, your homes Uh, You didn't know how it was going to be affected and then what happened was is that uh, everybody after debating Whatever it is that they do uh, Should we do it? Is it disrespectful in the wake of 9-11 to play games? Is it disrespectful to write about something? uh, That isn't serious or sober Uh, You know everybody was having to come to grips with these questions and what I was reporting on was uh, the world of professional golf trying to decide. And the decision in the end is that they thought that they should play. They thought that they should do the normal things that we do in life, that that would be an expression of resistance uh, to the terrorists. Uh, And it was a controversial position to take, but I think in the end it proved to be the right decision because it only took two or three days of fighting through it of, you know, for the golfers of playing golf when it was the last thing they wanted to do for people going out and watching a golf tournament when it was so insignificant, it seemed. And yet, once the skies cleared and people went about their business, did what they loved to do, it, uh, it helped. It helped immensely. And as a writer, I'm sure I was going through exactly uh, the same thing the assignment I had for the magazine to write about the big picture, it completely brought me, brought me out of my depression and gave me a purpose.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the golf.com podcast. Thank you as well to John Garrity for discussing it all with me. If you enjoyed the episode, let me know on Twitter at Sean underscore Zock. That's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K. And if you'd like to read John's report from 2001, you can find it online at golf.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.